listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. You know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a guy of the 80s. I graduated high school in 1982. I graduated college in 1986. And the thing that made that time so special was the music. And what we loved about the music was there were so many great bands, and all the bands that came over from England just kicked ass, and they all dressed to the nines. They all just looked so cool. And us American guys were trying to go to, like, Macy's and find clothes that looked like their clothes, and there wasn't any of that stuff. And my guest today is and was a lead singer of a great band from then, and they're still around, and he has a new solo album, and my guest is Cy Kernan from The Fix. How you doing, Cy? Good, Steve. How are you? Nice to be with you. Good to see you. Uh, you know what's funny? I was doing my research, and, and I usually talk to my acts. You know, I have some actors or musicians, and I ask them, have they been creative during the pandemic and being quarantined? But you just recently came out with an album. Tell me about that. Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's true. It's a very creative period. Once, um, once that kinetic energy just stalled, you suddenly realized all you had left was your wits to live on. And um, I found myself roaming around the house <coughs> that I've been doing pretty much all my life. It's probably why I became a musician, because <laughs> I like to sit around the house a lot. And um, I was just inspired by many things. And I just felt lockdown. That came to me as a title. And I'd been writing some songs up to that. And I realized that these songs kind of fit quite nicely into that title for various reasons. Um, as I started to work out the set list, I've been working with um, Facebook on um, something called a sound collection, helping them build a sound collection where they've been working with a lot of artists and allowing us to create music that will then go onto their platform and allow people to use it without the same copyright issues that other music can create on various social media platforms. So I was working with that. And I realized with that opportunity that if I was going to do something, I might as well put a hundred percent into it and not just do it as if it was, you know, it's some silly little side gig because in the end, whatever you put out there comes back to you. So I put everything in as if it was just radio sigh and I was just putting it out there. And then when they allowed me, they said, okay, now is a chance for you to start, put that music out. It's your own stream it, put it out as an album. So I have the rights to, um, fully rights to stream it and to call it my own. I'm the writer, so it's mine. And they've just been supporting me. And the way that works is it gives the music kudos that because it's my music, there are people out there that and Jamie from the band has been doing a few and many other artists have been doing it. It kind of gives it a little bit more real touch. And so I had a lot of fun with it and um, actually put together a hundred songs for over a two year period. And so now uh, these lockdown songs on lockdown were the ones that came through maybe from uh, last September when I came off the road through to when the lockdown happened and they just seemed to fit. It was almost as if there was a, a messenger speaking through, speaking in tongues, you know, like in, in, uh, in Los Angeles before an earthquake, pets go missing because they're picking up on something. And I'm just wondering whether, 
as a musician, when the world is kind of crying, we pick up on things. I know I do. I kind of have instincts. I, don't, I haven't got much for brains. I've got shit for <laughs> brains, but I've got good <laughs> instincts. And that's pretty much what's kept me alive my whole life. Now, so when I look... I was going to say, when you were writing, because you wrote 100 songs, that's a, a lot of songs. I mean, you know, most people, you know, they might write eight songs and they're happy. Now, when you write, when you're writing for a sigh, how do you differentiate, because you've also released solo albums and you've released many albums with a fix, how do you different, different, differentiate the writing? Do you sit down and you go, today I'm writing for Psy and maybe I'll write for the fix another day? How do you do that? Because you have such a big catalog. Yeah, pretty much it just comes out. And what becomes fix music is what the guys like. You know, I'll, I'll put stuff out and I'll play songs to them when we're together, you know, with the bedroom version or sometimes a very basic demo. And if it <coughs> if it ignites something in them, then it becomes a fixed song. If it doesn't and it's something I still feel quite strong, strongly about, then I'll continue to work on it. Um, what I have noticed is that it's more to do with vul vulnerabilities. As a band, when we're together, the kind of conversations we have are kind of like it's conversation you would have with more than one person it's not just about your insecurities it's about what you can do collectively um, as a group of people you're trying to add some energy to not just be the depressing eeyore in the room <laughs> and so i've always tried to capture the energy of these guys that have been my brothers for 40 odd years now some of them and I know them and they know me and we, we look for a voice. Their voice is as much in the music as, as in the words and those words just represent our journey. So songs that I write that reflect for them and resonate tend to be fixed songs and songs that about my failings, personal failings, that I don't want to bore them with, tend to be more solo songs. Now... When did you start getting into music? I know you uh, I know you met one of the members in college, I believe, but I think you went for acting if I'm not wrong. When did when did your love of music start? Like and who influenced you? Yeah. Well, music like for many people is was everything. It was the joy of the house. But <clears throat> when I was a tiny kid, I would see my parents put on music, get up and start dancing and their mood would change and it was just um, an energy that drew something out of me. We'd go to church, we'd be singing hymns, you come home, the radio was on, the TV was on, there was music, and we had a piano. And my dad's brother was um, a really good pianist, and he would show me a few simple chords that stuck with me. And then my sisters were, because they were better behaved than me, I guess, they were allowed <laughs> to have music lessons, and I was just told to go out and kick a ball. But um, I used to watch over their shoulders and learn what they were doing. And because they were being forced to do it in the end, it, they went cold on it. But for me, I felt like a spy taking snapshots of these chords and listening to what they would do. And so I'd gather a few chords and then I would just play truant, to be honest, from school and just come home because I knew nobody would be home. I could sit at the piano and work stuff out and just, I'd start uttering sounds, words, didn't know what I was saying. It was just nonsense, but it made me feel good. And then I, a couple of friends would come home from school and they'd be like, Hey, that's really good. 
keep going. And then we formed a band at school. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a little cough going on. And um, it's not COVID, <laughs> just allergies. Uh, you know, so they would come around and we, we had a band at school. We called ourselves Stranger because nobody knew who we were. <laughs> And at the same time, my elder sister had gone on to college and she started dating Adam, who was a drummer in a band at college. And uh, I went to see them and I said, you know, nice band, but I think your songs suck. <laughs> so they, they were like, cheeky little bastard. And so uh, I joined in and they invited me in. I started writing songs and pretty much Adam and I became the kind of duo force of the band. And we as we got more serious about what we were doing, some of the others weren't so serious. They would, they would leave. And when you audition for a new player, you have to be really serious about what you want to do to get them to stay and want to play with you. So we became more and more serious about it. And then we'd start to get gigs. And then the final piece was when Rupert joined. And then when Jamie joined, that's when the sound really solidified. It became something very unique to us. Was a sound that resonated with the kind of mood that we were in and that we wanted to portray. Um, you said earlier when you were in your introduction that you know cool English bands are how they dress. We never had a unifying fashion that look, but we had a unifying fashion in sound. All of us connected in this in this audio mood, which was kind of slightly dark and slightly um, rhythmic, a tip of the nod to some funk and a tip of the scale to some heavy rock. So when you put that in, it's like we were kind of very eclectic and things that were inspiring us were all over the shop. Now, what was it like when you were finding your sound? Because, you know, you were in England. You know, there was the great bands. There was great bands everywhere, but you guys got their experience Bowie before, let's say, I lived near Philadelphia, before we did. Who was your influence? Because you had, as you said, you had a different, a very different sound. What were you pulling from? Were you pulling from, what were the bands that you were pulling from? So many bands, you know. I was listening to uh, a lot of Bowie, a lot of Roxy music, a lot of, um, and then there was weird stuff. I was listening to Super Tramp. Well, it's not weird, but that's, I was listening to Todd Rundgren a lot when I was a kid, I heard him come out of the radio and there's just something about the chords and the sound of his voice that just hooked me in line and sinker. And, um, he was a huge influence. And so was Bowie. And then my sister was very big into Stax music, Motown, um, and Aretha Franklin, you know, I used to mouth to say a little prayer every day in the mirror, you know, with the hairbrush moment I wake up. Oh, that song, it's just, you know, how could you not want to join in with that? So the Philly sound, a lot of the Philly sound, a lot of the Motown sound and black bands were very important to my um, early schooling. And we, when we joined, Rupert was really into Stax music too. He loved that black blues, the kind of music that actually took off more American R&B took off more in England before it really hit big in America. Same with Tina Turner. Her career kind of kicked off big over there before here. Um, 
so we had that repartee and then Jamie was very much into bands like television and Velvet Underground and some more of the Richard Hell kind of road to um, salvation and Adam was more of a northern heavy rock guy but he also he was he introduced me to a band called Little Feet Lowell George's band and the meters and all that stuff so we were coming from there um early on i think the one album that jamie and i both really connected on when he first joined the band he gave me this album called my life in the bush of ghosts which was david byrne and brian eno had a an album that they made together that was incredible it was like the first kind of sample weird it was like looking at a stained glass window but audio version of it and very moody and full of kind of urgency and sound bites and very it just attracted me to this um, power that music can have in a subliminal way and so he and I both really connected to that the, the sort of dark messages that can come out so we we bonded on that and we tried to sort of emulate quite a lot of the, those sounds so I would say um, who do you call it David Byrne yeah he was very big influence on the pair of us. Now, as you're as you're learning your craft, as you're in the band, how are you honing your skills as a front man? Because that's one of those things. That's like an NFL quarterback, you know, or, or, or a soccer goalkeeper. It's the thing everybody is concentrating on you. How are you honing that? Because you you're the person they see first, and if the band if they don't like you, they're going to yell at you. They're not going to yell at the drummer. Yeah. It's- it's quite strange, actually. I remember being very nervous. Um, you know, I did... Adam was studying drama at a teacher college, teacher training college when I first met his band. So I got invited in to be the outside actor, the face that nobody knew in the college to do some parts. So that kind of gave me my first idea of what it was like to contain extreme nervousness and go out in front and hold your own in front of an audience. Um, and I quickly learned that it was actually easier not to have to learn someone else's lines and just have your own. So we would go out every week and, you know, first gigs we'd be getting, there'd be four guys at the back of the pub <laughs> with their back to you. And, you know, your uh, your mission was to get one of those guys to turn around and face the band. <laughs> so whatever you had to do, you know, it's, it would be quite just swear in between the songs. That was the thing that worked the most, to be honest, or smash a glass or something. But eventually you get them to turn around. And then it was, my girlfriend at the time was like a a dancer. So I was stealing her, like whatever bits of weird clothing I could wrap around myself. Um, No, that didn't work. Right. Let's go here. Let's put that on. Let's go and find an old jacket. There used to be this market in, in, um, Camden Market where you'd get all this secondhand really strange clothing so we used to go there on a weekly event come back with this slightly strange smelling clothing and try that out and eventually you'd find something that was comfortable that resonated with I don't know this persona that takes you over when you go on stage Um, very quickly I discovered that I use my hands a lot when I talk so they became like my my foil I'd be looking at them and I'd be singing to them and then I'd be animating with them and punctuating the words 
so kind of went down that road and as people would react the more I would do it and um, you know it's just something you get into you know later in life I realize I'm more comfortable with it because I, you know I'd, I know where the energy takes me and I know where it can go and I know what the song has to be to the listener and how much energy you have to do. So every, every night when you're singing a song, you really have to summon up the meaning of that song. And if you're pissed off or thinking about the laundry, it just falls flat. And I've never wanted to do that. Like I've never wanted to sing a bum note either. So I really put a lot of focus on that. If you get that right, the persona comes and the connection is made. So you guys have the band in, in the early age and you're learning to be a front man and you know you're you're focusing and you're going from playing the crappy bars in front of four people. When do you start getting traction? When do people start noticing? And were you already the fix then, or were you still portraits then? Yeah, we were fixed with one X when when Jamie joined. Portraits was before that. That was like, but I really sort of aligned the beginning of what we have to offer. Fix music was born when Jamie joined, and that was fixed with one X. Um, we had <coughs> somebody told us to send our tapes to various producers because that might be another good way of getting some interest. We did do. Rupert Hine picked up on it. We went and made some early recordings, Lost Planes, Red Skies, and uh, a song called Acrobat that we didn't, that didn't actually get released on a main album. But Lost Planes did, and it was then put on a compilation album for a club called the 101 Club, which our manager was running at the time. And he put a compilation album that had Thompson Twins, Wang Chung, Gang of Four, uh, a couple of other bands that became quite famous, I can't remember, and Shriek Back, I think, and then The Fix. So we had Lost Planes on this Warts and All album. And there was a DJ called Anne Nightingale, who was on Radio 1, who heard song and she played it and so the next week from literally playing that bar with four guys in it the next week after this the singles the been out on the radio there's like 200 people in this club and i was like you know whoa you could see the power of radio so at that point we just became obsessed with not the machine of it and we didn't this wasn't so much the competition but just how you had to set yourself up to you know get as much attention as you could without being egotistical though it is all about ego really <laughs> and so we, we blew up from there and then the record companies started to pay attention um and i think mca came down there was a there was a big demonstration at london university the night we were happy to be playing so there's a big sense of urgency and the record company had to climb through the window because there was a big sit-in <laughs> and so they thought we were like this huge you know powerfully politic protesting band and, uh, and I you know I remember I had one black leg warmer on and one purple leg warmer on and it was all like ooh and uh, so we were there we sang Stand or Fall and it kind of just resonated and we were signed up within like a week and then we called back with Rupert Hine who kindly helped us to get our first recordings and we finished the album in three weeks so that was Shuttered Room and then from there took us around we made a little noise in england and we 
you've got to sort of play a strange game in England to get up the charts. And we were just getting up to the lower 40s and then we got the call that we were doing something in in Boston in a radio station called WBCN had put lost planes into heavy rotation and we started selling serious numbers in Boston. So our manager said, let's put a tour together and get over there. So um, the album came out and we did a couple hundred thousand copies just in Boston. And it was at the time when alternative music was starting to come out and um, MCA US started to pay attention. And there was this guy called Irving Azoff, who we all know now, you know, Mr. Music Business. He had just taken over MCA at, just as we were cresting. And he came and visited and said, look, I kind of missed the first day of this album release and that irritates me. Go back and give me another record just like this and I'll I'll be there for you. So he did and that was Reach the Beach. Now, what was your experience coming to the States and starting to play a tour in the States? Because, you know, it's so weird. I hear different bands, you know, they they come to the States for the first time and, and they see what they see on TV. You know, I mean, I know you live in Southern California. I lived in L.A. for, you know, 16 years. And when people would say, hey, we got to go to the Walk of Fame, I'm like, hey, you don't want to go to the Walk of Fame. You know, it's nothing It's nothing like you see. It's like, you know, yeah. what, what was it like for you guys coming over to the States? Had any of you been to the States before then? Uh, no, I had not. I think maybe Jamie had visited once, um, but I hadn't. And it was our first week in New York City. And I was, quite frankly, I was overwhelmed. And um, I was jonesing for some smoke. And uh, the record company said, guy at record company got me a joint and said, be careful with that. So I remember going, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Give you that. So I took a hit of this joint and Manhattan just exploded before my eyes as I was walking down (laughs) 7th Avenue, high as a kite, and just started crying tears of joy and just thinking, you know, like, because my dad's, brothers Irish had emigrated to America so I did have some relatives around and I was just following the footsteps of all these kind of hopeful immigrants that had come in on the wave of whatever and we'd come in we'd been invited in on the on the music I just felt like the luckiest person in the world uh, we went on start doing a lot of driving that's the first impression was how big everything was and how easy it was to stuff food in your face <laughs> that's why everyone's so sad <laughs> you know it's just like ah oh, munchiness toke on that fill your face with that toke on that fill your face with that it was like munchies and i was skinny as a rail but i swear i put on like two ounces on that tour <laughs> now now when you're when did you start making the videos what and what was your experience because i hear different stories some people love videos some people hated videos because you know people don't understand just like hollywood you sit around it's a play and sit game you get up you do a little bit you sit down what was your experience in your early videos and then how do you think they helped the fix because mtv was playing you guys yeah well we were lucky enough to have our our first experience of making videos was um rupert hines girlfriend at the time was a lady called Jeanette obstoy who became a big influence in the band actually she wrote the lyrics for Secret Separation and a couple other lyrics for us. And she really guided 
the output of the band. And she'd also been an art director in her illustrious past up to that moment. And so she put a storyboard together for a video. And so we made Stand or Fall. Actually, we made Some People was the first video we did. And she had some friends that were film camera guys who used film. So we were using 16 millimeter film at the time to make those. We used to build our sets in a little church hall. So for the uh, one thing leads to another tunnel is just a tube of wood that was carefully crafted diagonally across this church hall. And it was shot to with heavy white burnout to make it look like it was. Ooh. So that was an easy experience. But then as we got more successful, the record companies were, at that time, they were agog as to how much money, you know, they're 10,000 pounds for video. We don't even know what it's going to do. This is just before MTV. And after MTV came out and they saw how powerful that medium was because people were now, it's the first real national radio station in a way, MTV. People were seeing you across the country. The record company started throwing money at it and then more serious directors would coming in to grab hold of that coin. And we were like, it got a little bit more corporate in the video sense of things. And it was a lot of sitting around and a lot of like, suddenly the expensive clothes came out. And then people say to you, right, you've got to take that expensive look and go on the road. And I was like, you can't do that because after the first night, you're all sweaty. What are you going to do? Wear that crispy sweat stained shirt the next night and the next night. So it didn't quite work out for us until the level till we could get a wardrobe lady you know and that didn't happen for many months after so i did find the videos a little bit of a letdown always you know when you went to look at them i'd always be like oh it doesn't have the same impact that listening to the song does close your eyes feel it and takes you somewhere the the important thing about music is the you can listen to it whilst you're doing other things, which is also dreaming and imagining yourself in the song. But a video is like two dimensional and your imprint is done. It also at the time suited uh, female artists slightly better than guys, because as it went on, guys weren't so fashion oriented. Whereas say for example, for Madonna, videos were an incredible tool. She could wear a tartan dress knowing that Target would have 100,000 tartan dresses on sale the day after the release of her video. So it's very lucrative and very powerful. And so you could see the curve of what MTV and pop music was becoming. And it was a little bit of a turn off for me because I always felt that music is its own private dreamscape. It's an exchange between the musician and the listener. And we have a mind's eye that we can use, but we played the game. You know, we had to, and we had some videos that worked. I'm not that embarrassed by them. Um, it was just a little tricky to, when we really hit big, we were, I think, mistaken as a pop band where we really, our roots are really as a rock, rock band. Cause we have got, you know, one of the best guitarists in the world in this band. And he, he's, brilliant at doing the sort of funk chops and the poppy nature but to me one thing leads to another wasn't really an obvious pop hit it just got 
it hooked people because it was so bizarre. And to this day, it's still people still play the crap out of it because it's a very. I think we all kind of know what the lyrics are now. Well, it's funny. It's funny about that song because you know, it's just I'm an '80s kid. You know, went to college and high school. You know, hanging in the, in the bars and and you know, a song like you know. You dropped a bomb on me. You're, you know, DJ saved my life. Everyone would dance. When that song came on, only the cool people would dance because they dug it. They weren't like you know the the, the girls with the big hair and they 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 yeah. the floor. And it is. It's one of those songs that catchy that you know exactly as soon as it, when it, there's certain songs you just hear the boom the first thing you know what song it is. And and is that now now what was your hand in the writing of that? Um. Well pretty much the melody and the lyrics it was 10 minutes soup to nuts that song we were sitting in a pub in east london taking a break from rehearsing um i think depeche mode were in the other room next door so we were like trying to be like hey we're cool because they they'd been had a little bit more success up to that point and we were quite friendly with them back then so we were like taking it very seriously so let's go get drunk at lunchtime that was our version of taking it seriously (laughs) so we had two pints of guinness and jamie and i said let's go back to the rehearsal room early he picks up his guitar and just starts hitting that one chord and just a spew of words came out just the rhythm because the Adam wasn't there with the drums yet. I was just trying to just doing this kind of fit in with Jamie's groove. And then it was one thing leads to, and I just came out. And by the time the guys started coming back one by one into the room, Alfie would pick up his bass and he started. Then Adam comes in. It was literally layered. And within half an hour, we had that groove. The funny thing was, is that it's on one chord. So Jamie didn't even change chord. He just changed the way he came up to that chord. And I was changing the way the melody would come in from high for the chorus or take breaks. So it's a one chord song, um, which is pretty rare. The fact that it lasted the distance is no one's more surprised than me. Um, but the lyrics, then I went home that night and kind of picked out my madness that I just managed to catch on tape. And then I filled it out. And the inspiration at the time was there was this politician who'd be caught in a massive lie, a big scandal. He'd forgotten what he'd said and it stepped into his own lie years later. So I was like, well, there you go. I'm going to write about this guy who was in the back of my mind and People were kind of laughing. Of course, we're all freaking liars, but our lies don't affect the way the world turns out. And we all lie to ourselves, like how good looking we are, how whatever, you know, it's human nature. So the song kind of tells its own tale about deception and blah, blah. And, uh, you know, it's survived because it's not so direct. Now, now what, okay, you know, when we're going to turn the uh, the topic of what songs meant, just tell me what "Stand and Fall" and uh, and uh, "Stand or Fall" and "Red Skies" were about, because you know they're construed as political, and are they political? And at a young age, how are you write? How did you figure how to write political? Well, 
I guess if a sense of impotence in the country that you're living in, meaning that anything that you could say or do won't affect what's happening in the corridors of power, then that's about as political as it meant for me. I just, for stand or fall, was definitely post-Armageddon imagery of, at the time in the late 70s, early 80s, Margaret Thatcher was talking about um, this theatre warfare, which would mean that basically America would keep some of its nuclear bombs in Germany and scattered around Europe so that it would have a short range to just dump on the Russians. And the Russians would then dump on us and America would be 5,000 miles away, not the target. So it just felt like we were in a place where, hold on a minute, we've got your bombs being fired from us, our land, and you're way over there. So it felt a little strange and they were voting about it and they were talking about how important it was to have this strong face for NATO. And it just seemed the wrong way to be going, that eventually that power train was going to break. And that was then. You could just smell the first stench of greed coming into politicians' tone. Up until then, you know, a, a gentleman or a business owner or somebody who, who felt some interest or connection to his workers. But after that, when you had mergers and acquisitions, people were buying shares in companies that they had nothing to do with except make money from it. And so that affected the climate and they were voting in politicians that would help them to do that. So that was going on whilst I was still obsessed with just this nuclear Armageddon fallout. I, I was a peaceful kid, I, but at the time I realized how hopeless it was in the face of this kind of angry power. And then Red Skies at Night was another Armageddon-laden image Maybe I was a little dark and miserable about it all, but it resonated in a way that most of the people outside of the system, which is the majority of the people, we think we live in a system that contains us, but we're just we're just being fished like a big net, and they just take what they want out of it, lift the net out of the water, and the rest of us small fry just left swimming around, and you see it today. You know, I don't want to get political on this particular present moment, but you back then you could just see the first footprints of a greedy machine. Whether it was one guy, hard to say, but it was definitely an ideal that started to take hold and make easy money for people that were soulless. And now we live in a world where there is very little soul. In fact, if you say to somebody the word soul, they think you're being naive or it's cliche. But pretty much that's your sixth sense. That's what we have. That's our that's our reason for existing is to connect outside of ourselves to resonate in the way that the universe hangs in this beautiful moment. But, you know, now, your, your writing is, is very deep, and that's great. But back then, were people... What were the record companies thinking? Like Because, you know, 80s music, we know the sound, and they must have been like, holy shit, wait a second. 
what is he talking about? Like, like your first, I mean, they wanted you to do a second, your follow-up, you know, after your first one did great. But what what were they thinking? Were they like, hey, you know what, Cy, we like your sound, but, but can you tone it down a little bit? I mean, what was their input to you? Yeah, it definitely was a little bit of, like, mind-boggling. Eyes glazing over as you're talking to people. And, uh, you know, you got to remember that guys at record companies weren't rec- rocket scientists either. It was it was a business and we had to strike a contract deal with the business and we had to get them to do what we wanted and they had to try and get us to deliver what they could use. So it was a dance. And I think when we came to reach the beach, there definitely was an, not an effort, but I did want to lighten up a little bit. But at the same time, we upped the beat made it a little funkier and the messages were still going in yet they were simpler for example saved by zeros a very minimal song but it represents everything that i just said in the last five minutes about soul you know when you have nothing you know you can't fall from the floor the less you have the more you can become that's uh it's a philosophical notion that has sort of hypnotized, mesmerized humans ever since they could suck their own toes. Now, now, Reach the Beach is a big hit. The album's... What, what are you going through when the album's getting bigger? What does the band feel like from when the album starts off because I know it's pressure on any musician. If you have a somewhat successful first album, you come out with another one, and they want to hit. Especially back then, record companies, you know, wanted that. I mean, we all know that. What is it like when you put that out, and then you just start? It just starts taking off. Is it like a roller coaster? Is it nerve wracking? I mean, you know, what were you going through? Because you're getting bigger every day. More albums you're selling. Boom, you're going to number one in Canada, number four. What is it like for you when you're just sitting there holding on? Uh, super exciting. Um, one of the first many unknowns that are yet to unfold. We'd never had um, any huge success up to that point, so it was very exciting. At the same time, <clears throat> there was a lot of kind of weighty advice coming in from our managers not to get ahead of ourselves and not to trip up on the excitement because right after a successful album is a failure of an album that fails quite often because people uh, lose sight of what it is that got them there. And I could definitely see in the acceleration that after Reach the Beach, the inspiration and the way that we wrote music was different than the first two because the first two, our lives had been pretty much London-based, sedentary, London boys go back to London, friends and family from eons ago, solid. You go out on the road for 18 months, you come back, you've forgotten everyone or they've forgotten you or you've moved on or you've smashed it down like a pile of bricks and you've been reborn into this other persona, which when you look at it now, it's pretty small, but back then it was huge. So you're scrabbling, a lot of scrabbling around, a lot of ego battles as to what it is that actually success means. Is it, it's not you personally, it's just this 
product that you've put out there that's successful. You're just the person that wrote it or is part of it, but it's not actually you. So I can remember when I'd be doing interviews, like trying to shut down this kind of opinionated ego that would come out. <laughs> you know, suddenly you're an expert on stuff that you don't even know about because people are asking you these things. So we very quickly learned how to assassinate our egos. And we, we use this wonderful drug called LSD <laughs> that completely took me sideways at a time when I was thought I was losing my mind from too much touring. I was starting to hallucinate every night on stage as to what was going on. And I took a couple of useful trips that ex exposed what was going on and allowed me to just kind of fall down like a feather very gently from the high of silliness that I was at and just come back down to a place where I needed to be because I didn't particularly want to die out there like another rock and roll casualty and that acceleration definitely puts you in the path for that oncoming train, which is too much drinking, too much partying, not enough sleep, believing things that you shouldn't even be understanding yet. Acceleration of, you know, you're not equipped for that kind of attention. So shut down, get back into a fairly calm state and then, uh, I had a child with a, a young lady that I met then about a year later, so that calmed me down, and I became a slightly more seasoned person. I always wanted to be a songwriter, musician, and somebody who could sing on stage, and when I got off stage, I didn't want to have to be, you know, all the rest of the stuff. I didn't see myself as a circus act at that point, and so I, I really appreciated the anonymity that I was I'd had before so the kind of rise up and then could have gone further but something took us back round into another world we decided we wanted to be more of a stable um, outfit and I think I was the youngest in the band by four years so I relied on the wisdom of the other guys in the band who were slightly they'd been through a little more than I had at that point so they were they, their stability was very important to me yeah. i stayed in new york when they went home and i went mad in new york for a couple of months what was gone mad for cy kerner in new york because you know were people recognizing you by then i mean because of mtv i mean you know you said you like your anonymity but what was it like when you were start getting in new york city being in a big band I mean, were people coming up to you a lot? Were, were people, you know, buying you drinks? Like they always say when you're a star, everyone buys you everything. What was some craziness in New York that you would have? It was just, uh, I used to pal around. My best buddy was a guy called Ian Copeland, who was the, our agent. He was Miles Copeland's brother and Stuart Copeland's brother from the police. He was the band's agent. And uh, he and I really hit it off. So he took me under his wing and showed me, all the haunts in New York. And then I remember doing a lot of night clubbing. You know, I think Studio 54 was on its last legs back then, but Area and Limelight and all these other clubs were starting to jump up. And I was meeting other 
like-minded nutcases. So it was, it was probably going to bed at 9am and waking up at 9pm, you know, just switch the clock round and become a bit of a vampire and uh, live that nightlife that only New York can, can provide. I feel sad for New York right now, though. God. Oh, yeah. My, my brother lives in Midtown Manhattan, and it's just, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Now, how did you end up with Tina, meeting Tina Turner? Yeah, that was uh, uh, her manager, Roger Davis, had was putting together that private dancer album, and he came up with the idea of having Tina co-write with some successful bands at the time just to give her a bit of traction into a different market. So we we were having success at the time, and Rupert Hine as a producer was also having success because of it. So Roger contacted Rupert and said, would you like to be involved with a couple of songs on Tina's record? And we, we happened to be in the studio at the time recording the Phantoms record. So we took a week break whilst Tina came in and uh, we started they started the sessions for those songs. And uh, I was asked to do some backing vocals. Jamie, lucky bastard, got some writing credits on the uh, Might Have Been Queen song. Um, the Better Be Good To Me was a Holly Knight. Uh, uh, forget the name of the producer now, the guy that did Blondie. He co-wrote Better Be Good To Me with Holly Knight, who's a songwriter. And so I got to sing BVs with Tina, which was a huge buzz for me. She's an amazing soul. And then right after that, they made a video and we were just about to leave for Australia. We were in London. They were shooting the video in Los Angeles. So flew on a plane to Los Angeles um, where they had this choreographer called uh, Tony Basil, who was supposed to be choreographing the video. And I was like, <laughs> choreographing? I don't even know how to spell it, let alone be choreographed. <laughs> so... I'm like, I'll just do what I do. And I decided to dance barefoot in the video, which, as you were saying earlier, a lot of sitting around and a lot of overshooting. So barefoot dancing, blisters. <laughs> After about 18 hours, blisters on the feet, asking the crew, have you got any, you know? And they're like, oh, yeah, rock and roll. Let's give them a bit of... And I was just taking their drugs and rubbing it on my feet just to <laughs> numb the pain. They were like, Jesus so that was my memory of the better be good to me video but that video went and got played and uh kind of introduced us to another market which was fantastic and really enjoyed it and love tina to this day she's such a bright soul and um she's been a huge influence in terms of her i don't want to say her faith but her philosophy of life is very strong Plus, she's a Sagittarian like me, so she we connect on a on that kind of level, you know. Now, I'm a Scorpio. Everyone hates us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a good one. Uh, so you 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 said earlier that you know you were you were going up on Reach the Beach, and then you started coming down. And what is it like when you're coming down? When you were seems like though you were trying to get more direction, and I think you were probably tired, as you said, of you probably wanted to get back to your roots. Are you comfortable with it when you're starting to come down or are you worried? I mean, what goes through your mind? I was comfortable. The record company, less so. Um, what was on my mind was just 
trying to empty my mind. It's what was on my mind. Uh, my life had been so, like I was saying, the first pillar that I had was growing up, putting the band together. To me, success then was just getting the record deal. That was the first pillar of success. Second one was getting noticed and start to sell records. Then there's the fame part, if you like, the small measure of that. Then coming back down, you realize that a part of your life is empty because you're just being taken for this thing, but nobody really knows you. So you start to feel sorry for yourself. And so we came up with the whole Phantoms concept, which was a darker record. Um, the writing perspective of that was kind of sifting through a back through a, a life where you was like scorched earth, come back to the place that had inspired your start was now very different and you're kind of not fitting in. Especially for me, I'd, I'd kind of packed up and left London and moved to New York. So... I'm not sure there's so much guilt. I was just too like crazy and hungry for it. But at the same time, there was a dark, a darkness that comes in, which is actually as a writer is more inspiring than any, anything happy for me anyway. Now, now when you, when you leave a record company, when this happens, were you, were you more relieved because it sounds like you were tired of the shit? I mean, or is it, or is it, do you feel like it's a slap in the face because it's like, Oh, well, this didn't sell as the first one. Does it make you feel like a commodity? Yeah, well, not really. I mean, we didn't leave the record company until after a walkabout. We stayed with MCA and they, they stuck with us. But Irving Azoff left after Phantoms, which is a big um, sort of loss in terms of how the records would be managed. But um, yeah, there's a little bit of grievance, but... In the end, looking back, any mistakes you make, you gotta own them. Anything you do, if you you know, if you don't come up with the goods, you don't come up with the goods. It could be, oh, it was because of this, it was because of that, it was because of this. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as just fate. It's like I turned left there, then I went right, and then I went right again, then I went wrong, and then I went wrong again, then I went left, and then I went right, then I went wrong, then I went right, and then I end up here. And all the things that I've witnessed and experienced have made me what I am today. So, you know, re regrets, the most useless of emotions, if you're trying to sift through the lessons, because we are here to make, learn lessons and to come to peace with our existence. So if you deny the, the outcome of a lesson, then you're just going to, you're just doomed to repeat it. And quite frankly, at 62 years old, I'm not, I'm not up for learning those lessons again. I wanted to ask you, uh, I know you played Mike Peters in uh, Kilimanjaro. Yeah. What was that like? Because I heard, I had talked to Mike on my show and he said how everyone just came out. It wasn't like fancy hotels because you're in Nepal. But what was that like to sit there and play? Was it very peaceful or, I mean, what is it like? Yeah, Mike Peters, hardest working man in show business. He, he single-handedly kind of showed me the key to my next how solo music could be i kind of got the key that just the simplicity of just an acoustic guitar and the majesty of a mountain is all you need so we went off and did this everest trek the first 
year of his Love, Hope, Strength charity. And that was a huge learning curve because you, you're right, simple um, climbing mountains with a group of people that have been through a terrible experience of surviving cancer or known people that have died with cancer or just they're just generally trying to help out. That was a very important period in mine and Jamie's life, I believe, that showed me something very simple and something very powerful. So I've always been indebted to old Mikey for that. And he's he's taken it above and beyond um, what just being a normal rock and roller can be. He's got such tenacity. So rather than sitting around moaning as to, oh, I haven't got any shows or I haven't got any of this, just take a leaf out of his book and just start hitting the phones and demand attention. And I kind of borrowed a little bit of that from him. And that's what got me out to the solo world. Cause I was always a little bit nervous to go out with just a candle without the spotlight of a big band and make big noise. Now I really enjoy going out with just a piano and a microphone and trying to connect with people on a different level. Why, why do you think you were nervous? Just because you get used to being uh, covered, you got your back covered with this whole machine. Everything's done for you. You know, there's the solo, get the break. That's the amazing. Maybe it's a self-worth thing or maybe it's a vulnerability that you have to get into a certain headspace. And then I realized that the connection that you can really make with people is Raw honesty, raw vulnerability is just as appealing as showmanship. In fact, that is probably the most important part of showmanship is opening up your soul. And maybe I'd been a bit closed off in this world of the band is touring and the this and the that and the machine of it all, which I enjoy. I still love it. It's like bigger stages, bigger noise, bigger. It's great. I'm not taking anything away from it, but for the other seven months of the year, rather than sit around twiddling my thumbs at home, I was having a decent little solo gig career <coughs> until the lock- lockdown happened, shut us all down. Now, you've released a bunch of solo albums. Which one is your favorite? Well, just not from what people say, hey, Cy, we love this. You personally, is it your first one because it was that you did it or was it another one? Yeah, I think it's, I, I've got to say it's Solar Minimum is probably my favorite one just because um, the mood I was in and the kind of elements that turned up on that song. And when I play songs live, really stripped down now solo, I go to that album. There are a lot of songs on that album that really connect. So that's like the backbone of my set there are three or four songs on that and then not taking anything away from the others but the others are a little bit more eclectic so i i take less from those so i think yeah solo minimum has to be my favorite now now when you do a solo show do you also play some fixed stuff or is it just all side i did do some fixed stuff now I do only sigh as, as my catalog and people have got to know more of my solo work. I can sort of just bore them to death with just my stuff. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll do like, I'll do like one or two 
big songs for sure with but very different versions like i've recently been getting into a song called no hollywood ending that's on uh, the want that life album which really lends itself to very stark performance so i've been enjoying that and uh are you satisfied is another fix song and I, you know i'll play the the big hits on a guitar afterwards just to get everyone singing in the end it's about celebrating so people have turned up and i want to give them the respect of the journey we've been on so take it back to red skies and one thing and well, you said it's about celebrating, and you know, I was going to come see you last year in New Hope, but I couldn't. It was rainy when you did the Fix Miss. Tell me about the Fix Miss and how this idea came up. Because I personally, I'm, I mean, I know you mix it up. You know, you play some Christmas. I love Christmas music, and I think it's one of those things that you know, it's just that when you hear it. Like for me, growing up near Philly, every time I heard "Santa Claus is Coming to Town" by Bruce Springsteen on WMMR, I knew it was Christmas. And when I lived in LA, it wasn't the same. I never heard it. And I was like, and even you heard it wasn't the same. What, what, it, do you have a love for Christmas just from being a kid or have you always loved Christmas or what's up? Yeah, no, it's just the whole nostalgia of Christmas, even though a lot of it is kind of tinsel and there is a core thing. There's a, there's a feeling you remember it as a kid and as an adult, you try and recreate that feeling for the kids and then you try to recreate it for the kid in you. And so I'm, for me, it's every time we hear, I hear John Lennon. And so this is Christmas. You know, as soon as I hear that, I know it's Christmas season again and throw on, you know, it's a wonderful life or home alone, <laughs> all those silly movies that would just send you back there. Um, so we did a couple of covers of, we did John Lennon's song there for the tour. And it was very, it was really a lot of fun. People are in a good mood. Um, it stops us from getting too dark. And even though there is a lot of darkness, because the year, it's this dark part of the year, it's a time to celebrate and be grateful for a lot of things. And I think in that gratitude, you have to let go of a lot of things. Um, and it's just lovely to feel it in the audience. They're searching for it and they're bringing you this gift of Christmas. The gift of Christmas is their presence. They're not, no pun intended, but just the mood that everyone's in. And to perform in that mood is really special. So we kind of went on. We did a couple of years of doing the Fixmas tours and it's really worked out well financially for us, but it's also been very rewarding just on a, personal level so we were going to do it again this year but i don't know if it's we won't be able to do it now how did you end up in california for love for love this this time it's real love <laughs> <laughs> i'm in santa cruz california which is i love this part of the world central coast the town santa cruz is the most beautiful town the cliffs the beaches the redwoods it's a little taxing at the moment with the with yeah. the fires it's been very scary but unknown to what i've learned being here is that most of the fires burning are grasses not forests as some people would have you believe so yeah the forests have burned but those redwoods have been around through hundreds and hundreds of years if not thousands of years of fires and in actual fact, for the seeds of a redwood tree, they need huge extreme heat 
of a forest fire to crack open and germinate. And that's how they stop the forest being choked out. So the redwoods actually need these fires. The problem started when the population started to encroach on the forest and everybody's putting in their hard-earned dollars into beautiful idyllic spots that have fire traps. So there is a problem. And there is some climate change issues, but all in all, it's the most amazing part of the world. And my honey, who I fell in love with when I first set eyes on her in 2007, though we didn't connect until 2012 or 13. That's awesome. Now, one final question. When this is all over, when we can get back, you're creating, what is the future of you and what is the future of the fix future of the fix is as many shows and tours as we can do now the, till the wheel comes off the bus and for me i'm really enjoying doing a lot of solo shows after this period of con- confinement we're also just ready to get out there and stay out there i'm pretty much looking at buying my own little tour bus and just rolling around and playing where anyone will have me small clubs you know i've been doing quite a few um home shows for people which something that mike peters turned me on to and that's a real blessing too you know you get 40 50 people in a home setting set up your own pa do the thing make it look good sounds great it's taking it into the home is a very special thing you people inviting you so there's a real love there and i get to feel the the exchange and um i I really enjoy that so it's a good contrast to the sort of big big banner big banner band doing the small thing i think there's a lot of room for i know it's very healing for me so i think there's a heal just to be able to go and visit people and take out the sort of bravado of i'm not so sure that the cult of personality is that good to sustain what i'm into is the cult of humanity and universal love that's my cult and i really want to propagate that as much as i can and still got mobility in my body that's awesome man i want to thank you for coming on now now do you tweet i know you're on facebook are you do you go on twitter i do occasionally i forget about it you know it's for a man of words tweet was 140 characters wasn't enough for me in the beginning and uh, though i am trying to sort of train myself to to hit that button now and then, but I'm not really that. I'm not really much of an Instagram guy either. I kind of Facebook suits my world, and I have the friends that I really connect with, my old school buddies, and then I can use it for people that are actually really into what I'm doing. I can put it out there, and it it peppers out quite nicely, you know. Well, that's awesome. People go to his website. His website's great, cykernan.com. Also, the other website is thefix.com. Go get locked down. I know I have Amazon Music. I'm going to listen to it tonight. I'm excited to listen to it. I'm going to sit there. Yeah. My wife goes in and she watches this TV show called Big Brother. So I go in the other room and I, I listen to my music. Yeah, that's cool. This so, is a tip. I've got, I've got a new EP coming out in the next couple of weeks. It's just uh, piano and voice uh, recorded. Um, it was recorded a couple of years ago, but I've actually put it together now as an EP. And it's just a hard copy only. And that will be available within a couple of weeks um, through the website. That's awesome, so, people. So go check outside. 
go to my website. We're talking about the sites, coopertalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Instagram's coopertalk1. Twitter's coopertalk. I don't really tweet that much, though. I did last night during the debates, but I usually don't. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, so people remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.